Well, good morning, church. It's truly an honor to be with you in this role today. Somewhat unexpected, and I've shared in your worship service about a half a dozen times, hoping to get to know you better and to talk to new people each time. And I suppose this is one way of getting to talk to more of you. It's also a reminder that uh, you've got to be careful what you pray for, because the Lord may give you exactly what you ask for, as well as 12 baskets beyond that. I'm thankful to Pastor Mark for entrusting me with the care of his flock in this moment. And I'm thankful to you for showing up today. If you were providentially hindered from being here today and you're listening to this later, then uh, we're thankful for you too. I'm thankful to RGC for allowing your pastor to have a weekend to serve in a different way. Having that time away is an opportunity for insight. Now, I think highly of Pastor Mark and his approach to preaching, but I'm not going to try to be him because he's way better at being him than I could be, even if we do have the same name. Now, I might be a little less formal than he is, but don't worry. I promised Gary that I would stay in the lane, so we're not going to deviate too far from what would be normal. But I feel like you and I, as we spend this time together, becoming closer as family, and maybe not super close yet, but maybe in-laws. I mean, they're still family, good in-laws. So the closer we are, then the less of a filter I use up here. So we'll see afterwards if I misjudge that closeness or not. But this morning we're going to open the Word, and we're going to look at something that's, that's pretty basic, actually. Something so basic that most of us probably just speed right on by it, and don't spend enough time understanding exactly what the weight of those words is. So if you still have your Bible open to Romans 5, that last passage that we were in, that's a good spot. We'll visit that again, but the basis of our text is going to come from a few pages to the left. We're going to be in my favorite book out of the Bible, the Gospel according to Matthew. Why would you guess Mark? So Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And I have it here in the ESV translation. So if you would, as you make your way to Mark chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm sorry, yes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. All right. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Lord, as we have this text from you today, then I pray that we will still our hearts, still our minds, and open our ears to exactly what you would have to inspire within us this morning. And God, the lessons that you have for us, uh, may they not be my words, but yours that are spoken and minister to us as we study what you have for us. And God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this opportunity. And I thank you for this time that we're going to spend in worship of you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
So school starts soon, and for a certain couple of young people today, it will be their first, first day of school. And it reminds me of an illustration of a popular cartoon that shows two kids talking with each other. The girl says to the boy, guess what? It was the first day of school, and I got sent to the principal's office, and it was your fault. The boy responds, how could that be my fault? You say, everything is my fault. Why is everything my fault? Her answer is, well, you're my friend, right? You should have been a better influence on me. Well, while that is obviously a case of blame, there is some truth in there. We have a responsibility to be a good influence to the folks around us. Jesus says that we will have an influence. Not that we ought to, but that we will. People are always watching you. And they pay even more attention to those who identify as Christians because they love to find flaws or failures or point out where we're imperfect. And we know that we are imperfect, but that's often misunderstood by the outside world, thinking that Christians have a mindset that we are somehow less able to sin than the unsaved world is. That's not true. We can sin in any way that the unsaved can. But so you have an influence. Now what are you going to do with that influence? At this point in human history, we have this relatively new occupation of being a social media influencer. You can buy this product or support this person or vote this way, whatever it may be. People are paid to be influencers. And at this time, influencers are grouped into four categories based on the number of followers that they have. The smallest level of influencer, so if you want to be an influencer, the minimum number of people that you have to have following you, listening to you, is a thousand people. That would be called a nano-influencer, having a grouping of 1,000 to 10,000 followers. The largest category of influencers have 500,000 or more. Now just think of what would happen if each of us in this room were able to effectively be even just a nano-influencer for Christ and be leading 1,000 people to a better understanding of Christ. It's not just about the numbers, but if all the true Christians in this city, in this country, were being the correct influences, wouldn't this world look quite a bit different? So our influence obviously has to do with the way that we live. And in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, and its theme is of how people should live. Now the first 12 chapter the verse 12 verses, excuse me, of this chapter talk about our relationship with God and they describe in abstract terms what a believer should be and it has the viewpoint of the world's influence on us. The the meek, for example. I mean, the world calls you meek when you won't stand up for yourself, is their definition of it. So it's the viewpoint of the world's influences on us. But then we have four verses that we read today which deal with our relationship to others. And the metaphors that are here are much more than just being functional. Let's point out that these are metaphors. They're not similes, so it doesn't say you're like the salt of the earth. You're like light. They're not even suggestions. So, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. 
Now, this is who He calls us to be, and this is our function while we live in this world. Now, once the Spirit draws us to salvation and we are converted, then we are now automatically the salt of the earth. You didn't get an option there. Christian equals salt. Now, Pastor Brian Bill points out here that the you is emphatic and in the plural, literally meaning you are my followers and none other are salt and light. Now, salt and light make a deliciously balanced illustration together. Salt is hidden and it works secretly and slowly. Light is seen and therefore it works more openly and quickly. Salt must make contact in order to bring about an effect, while light must be seen. Now, one more. Salt is symbolic of the believer's inward character, while light is the believer's outward testimony. So why salt? People usually spend more time making application of the latter portion of these verses about how we're supposed to be light and to illuminate a sin-darkened world. And that application part of the verse is probably the area I spend most of my time teaching on because I want people to look at the everyday things that happen to us, any anything that's around us, situations that would, would not be considered necessarily um, phenomenal, and for us to look at all of those things and be constantly reminded of God's words, God's messages to us. It's not that God is in everything to the extent of pantheism, but God wants to be what we think about in each and every moment and in each and every situation that we come across. Now let's talk about salt. A few facts here. Salt is an essential element in the diets of humans, animals, and even plants. Not only does it flavor our food but it aids in digestion. Salt, as a chemical compound, cannot be destroyed by fire or by time. The first reference to salt in literature is actually in the Scriptures. Job 6.6 to be exact. And that was written a few thousand years before Christ is referencing it on the Sermon on the Mount. But that verse says, Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Now for some of you, that might be your life verse. I don't know. Salt has been used as a symbol of purity. There is a Hebrew custom to rub newborn babies with salt, thinking that it would assure good health. That's in Ezekiel 16.4. Whether you can try that after your baby, I don't know. You may go home and I, I don't know. Now there's another Hebrew custom that it is allowable for a Hebrew man to divorce his wife if she neglected to salt his food. Now I suppose that could be the answer to the wife enforcing a low-sodium diet. But salt was used in ancient Egypt to preserve mummies. Salt at times served as money at various places and times. We got the phrase, not worth his salt, from, ancient, from the ancient Greek practice of buying slaves in exchange for salt. Here's another one, that Roman soldiers were given a salarium argentum, which is a salt ration. And that is the word where we get our word salary. And furthermore, that's where the superstition comes from of it being bad luck to spill your salt. Now, that may be exactly what Leonardo da Vinci was thinking when he painted the famous Last Supper and put an overturned container of salt next to Judas's arm. More wars have been fought over salt than over gold. 
Thousands of Napoleon's troops died during his retreat from Moscow because they didn't have enough salt to treat their wounds. A couple more here. In the U.S., during the Civil War, northern armies cut off the supply of salt to Confederate troops by encamping near salt deposits near New Orleans. Some biblical references in Judges 9.45, it was used to destroy fields. In Numbers 18.19, it was used for covenant making. We are probably familiar with how Lot's wife looked back at Sodom as it was being destroyed and was turned into a pillar of salt. Uh, When Elijah sweetened the waters at Jericho, he cast salt into them to demonstrate the purifying power of salt. Uh, In Leviticus 2.13, it says all sacrifices were to be salted before they were offered to God. Now that's some of the history of salt, but let's get another couple facts out of the way before we really can understand this. The salt sea, or the dead sea as we know it, would have been familiar to Jesus' audience, has ten times the level of salinity as the ocean. And even today, Israeli companies generate about $3 billion annually from the sale of minerals from the Dead Sea. So when Jesus says that you're the salt of the earth, you have to remember that this statement has a wide-ranging and great importance, especially to us as we're supposed to figure out, why are you calling us this? Now, we know that salt is important for the health of the body and the purity of the blood, which is the physical life force of our bodies, but too often we relegate it, as well as that underlying thought behind this teaching, to just being a fixture that fits into the place setting at our table. And that is where Jesus takes the next half of that verse when He says, "...if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be restored?" You know, what good would salt be if it loses its taste and becomes a, a, something that's bland or flavorless? Flavorless. It's only good when it retains the characteristics of what it was created to be. Now, when you count on something to give you a particular flavor, and it doesn't, that's disappointing. Think of, okay, what do you do with gum that loses its taste? Obviously, you stick it under your pew, right? Now, when something stops performing the one way that you need it to, it's of no use to you and it's ready to be thrown away. Christianity should be to life what salt is to food. The Christian should be bringing a flavor into life as those around us observe the influence of our hope, our courage, and our kindness through the Holy Spirit. There's a good illustration of flavor that's on the ice cream aisle. One pastor asks the question, if Christianity was an ice cream flavor, what flavor would yours be? What would people say that your flavor is? Are you vanilla? Are you Rocky Road, always having that that tumultuous journey? Or you've got the Ben and Jerry's flavors where you've got hazed and confused. Does that describe us? Fish food, coffee, coffee, buzz, buzz. We should be bringing the flavor by living a kingdom lifestyle and not by becoming tasteless and undesirable with no value. But that's what the world wants to label us as. They want to say that we're the tasteless and we're the boring ones. Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen that I knew hadn't looked and acted like undertakers. What a shame, but you and I have seen that. 
one more along that line. Robert Louis Stevenson one time was making an entry into his diary and recorded it as if it were an extraordinary phenomenon that I have been to church today and I am not depressed. Should that be the way that it works? Yes, there should be a connection between the preaching of the Word and conviction within our hearts. But let's be cautious about what our influence is. And is our influence losing the flavor it should have, letting our existence become mundane and bland to those around us? You know, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, His victory over the penalty for our sins, is not something that we should allow ourselves to become numb to. We are no longer dead in our sins or weak as our Scripture reading that we had earlier in Romans 5, 6 said because we are more than conquerors through Christ as it says in Romans eight thirty seven. See, we had to let go of that burden of sin as Christ shed His blood for us and covered us by His redeeming grace. And because of that, we can be united with Him and bonded to Him. Now that brings up another interesting aspect of the illustration. That salt is a product of the two elements, sodium and chlorine. And they become sodium chloride. Now sodium is an element that's never on its own. It's always linked to another element. And chlorine is a poisonous gas. It's what makes bleach have the the aroma, the smell that it does. But when the two of them are combined, they produce common table salt. But in order for that combination to occur, the sodium has to give part of itself up for the ions to be able to bond. So as you think about how it has to give something up, what do you need to give up today to be able to be bonded in the pure relationship with Christ so that you can be the salt that He will put to use? There's no shortage for a need of salt in this decaying world that's around us. Salt is the preservative that can hold back decay. And if we are not, if we are the salt of the earth, there's the opinion of implication that if the believers were not here, we would see even more corruption in the earth than we presently do. Now, contrary to what some may say, the world is not a basically good place. I've heard that before. They think that there's the world is basically good, there's good in everyone. Well, the world is not a basically good place. If it were, then there would not be any need for the presence of salt to preserve and prevent corruption. So instead of basically good, the world is basically rotten. Look at the history. The unsaved world wants to tell the story of evolution, where man advances and achieves. But if you really consider the path of mankind, it's really a sad tale of devolution, where mankind is becoming more depraved as time passes on. If you need evidence of that, just see what's in the news on a daily basis. Or ask some of our senior saints if they had to lock their doors or if kids could play in their front yards 50 years ago. This world is decaying and falling apart. We're seeing society fall apart. Marriages, families, law and order. You know, things that were once the basic instincts of society have become at risk of extinction. Now, God has put us into a rotting and a dead world in order to preserve it as His work is accomplished. We are to be the antiseptic influence and impact. 
And as Pastor Bell said, we shouldn't get cranky that our country has been taken away. We shouldn't whine about the triumphs of evil. We shouldn't get hardened with anger. We understand this is not new. This is the way it was in the beginning. Antioch, Corinth, Athens, and Rome. The empire was not just degenerate, it was deadly. For three explosive centuries, Christians paid for their Christ-exalting joy with blood, and many around us still do. More will, and even as we read it in the news every day, it was time for influence, and it still is. So how do we do that? So, how do we be salt? We, well, obviously, as soon as we leave here, we start doomsday prepping, right? No. No, that sounds, that sounds too far for most of you. But that's the way that many Christians choose to respond to this. Why, why would I say that? Well, because too often we stop sharing the message. We stop standing up to sin. We get to a point where we isolate ourselves and we only interact with other Christians. We will safely sit in our same Sunday seats. We'll listen to a sermon that makes us comfortable. And then we go through a week where we don't share, we don't serve, and in effect we ignore the lost and the dying world around us just trying to tolerate them as we get through another week just waiting for society to collapse and the Lord to call us home. I have weeks like that. And I have this feeling that I'm not the only one here. And I also know that I'm not the first one. Think back to Jonah. If you remember what happens in Jonah chapter 4, he's come out of the fish, and he's sitting outside the city hoping that judgment would fall on the city. Now we contrast that with Jesus who looked over the city and cried over it because judgment was inevitable. Now, we do this because we get so eager about hating the sin that it spills over into us hating the sinner as well. Now, aren't you glad that's not how the Lord looked at us? Instead, we have that passage again in Romans 5 where it says that while we were in our sin, Christ died for us. Now, thank the Lord we have some examples of how to get this right. And we're not only looking at the Jonah story. Think about Joseph in Egypt. He was wronged by his brothers. He was wronged by Potiphar's wife. He was wronged by his cellmate. And then he was given every reason in the world to turn away from the Lord. That money, that power, that fame, people say that was the payoff. That was not the payoff. That was not God's reward to him. That's not the right way to look at that story. But in the midst of all that he faced, all those opportunities to turn away from God, all those opportunities to just take whatever was given to him and say, this is the easy life. I'm comfortable. I'm good. I don't need God. Instead of that, he stayed faithful to our Father and he was divine salt in his society. We also have the example of Daniel. He similarly chose faith over complacency and he actively lived out a life of salt in the Babylonian Empire. He had every reason to complain. His people were conquered. That which was familiar to him was taken away. He was given new laws. He was given new precepts, new rulers, and all sorts of things that were uncomfortable to him he just didn't want to do. But he did what he was supposed to do. He stayed true to the Lord, he stayed faithful, and he kept the commands by being salt in his situation. 
If we think that our nation is in a bad place now, just think of what it would be like if the Christians that we do have in it were no longer around. Well, we have that often referred to example of Sodom and Gomorrah where the number of believers in the city was less than ten. Remember how Abraham tried to negotiate with God and whittle it down. If there's a hundred, don't destroy it. If there's fifty, don't destroy it. God, if there's ten, don't destroy it. Were there ten? Well, what we know is that Abraham had to go get Lot out of the city because God was going to destroy it. That city was obsessed with its perverse sin. When the last believers left that city, the city was annihilated to a point that scholars still cannot find the center of the city because the city and its general neighborhood were completely obliterated. There will come a day when the culture that we live in will be judged, but God will call His own out of the world before His wrath falls upon the non-believers. Now, before that time comes, He has called us to prevent decay and to go and tell. Now, that doesn't mean that we all have to become missionaries to to China, Uganda, or to France. Some of us are called to go those great distances. Some of us are not, but we are all called to be active. You can't go and tell if you sit and stay silent on a shelf in the pantry. That's not what salt's for. You can't go and tell if we never leave the pew in our church and take our faith outside these walls. Salt should have an active effect, a changing effect. When you put salt on your food, be it a a steak or a potato or a watermelon or whatever you choose to put salt on, do you finish your meal and say, Oh, that was some good salt. No. You don't do that. You remember the food that you put the salt on. Now the purpose of the salt, it's not to take over the show. It's to bring out the best of the thing that it's come into contact with. Salt shouldn't just become like the food you put it on or else there would be no reason for having it. So if we as Christians, we go out into the world and allow ourselves to just become like the world by losing our positive influence, we will lose our usefulness. Christ's words in verse 13, they're they're strong. If the salt loses its impact, it is good for nothing and should be thrown out. So would that not mean that if we as Christians lose our usefulness and our impact, that we're good-for-nothing Christians? Mm. We're given an example of someone in Scripture who illustrates that point. In Colossians 4.14, Paul says that Luke and Demas send greetings as they were with Paul doing the work of the Lord. Now, Demas is with Paul again uh, when he writes what becomes Philemon uh, chapter 124. Paul goes from describing him as a fellow soldier in the faith to in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul writes, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. This is almost assuredly what Jesus is warning about, where it says Demas, in love with the present world. If we lose our savor and we're attracted to this present world and its fleshly benefits that it appears to offer us, we become useless. We become fruitless in the Christian life. 
you you can't mix salt with the dirt of this world before it loses its saltiness and it's fit for nothing other than to be thrown out. You can throw that impure salt out onto ice where it has some use. But think about that imagery. Something that could have been pure enough to make your food better, to provide health benefits, to make an impact to you on that basis, has now become something that people will walk on or drive on. And then once they do that, they complain about the effects of it on their cars or on their grass. What a waste. This morning... You have to fight to keep your salt pure and savory. Pure salt creates thirst. And our influence should create a thirst for the world to know who Christ is. Now it's been said you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Well, there is some truth to that, but you sure have a good chance if you put salt in his mouth to make him thirsty. And I say that to suggest that we need to seek to create a thirst within others. If we are truly living the example and the influence that Christ desires, people on the outside will look at us and they'll see answers. They'll see confidence. They'll see hope that worldly logic can't explain. Think of how the Jewish leaders repelled the sinners, meanwhile Jesus attracted them. The Pharisees stood back and criticized while Jesus spoke to people. I'm sorry. The, Jesus, the, the Pharisees stood back and criticized while Jesus sat down at a feast at Matthew's house with the tax collectors and the sinners. And that is who Jesus spent his time with. He spent his time with the thieves, the adulterers, the liars, because they admitted that they didn't have the answers and they wanted what only he could give to them. Just like when He spoke to the woman at the well, Jesus spoke to people and created that thirst for the living water. And the more that we are like Him, the more that sinners are going to be attracted to that influence as the salt of the earth. So because of that, be careful when you see a Christian around questionable people. They might be doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing and you're being the Pharisee. We need to be spending time in the lives of those who have not yet come to faith in Christ. And that takes an investment that's beyond just a surface level interaction. You can't just sprinkle the salt onto meat and expect it to be preserved. That salt has to be worked deep into the food and therefore our influence into people should seek to be as deep as possible. Now, each one of us as believers are charged to be God's salt in this spiritually dehydrated and decaying world. Paul doubles down on this idea in Colossians 4.6 when he says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. As Pastor Brian Bill said, when we treat people with gentleness, with respect, they will be more apt to listen to our message. And unfortunately, when some Christians lose their saltiness, they often try to save the world with pepper spray. 
There's too many instances where a Christian will think that they're doing the work of God by pointing out everything wrong with someone and using Scripture to back up their attack of how you're wrong when you do this and this is wrong. You shouldn't think like that. They think that we are called to project the truth at the expense of love. And folks, I've seen that too often. Love takes priority over truth. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be truthful, but that does mean that sometimes the truth is better left unsaid and we put love first. That's what we're told in 1 Peter 4.8 where it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now what's another common pitfall in our speech? Well, sometimes the more we know it can sometimes affect our ability to communicate the simple things. The message of Christ wasn't meant to be a complicated thing. In Matthew 18, Jesus says that we must become humble, we must become unpretentious like little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now church, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Ephesians 3.19 supports this verse by reminding us that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. Put love first and season your speech with salt. Now if we season our speech with salt, that would mean that when we talk about Christ and our Christian experience in our daily walk, it should be an appetizing thing. People don't want to, uh, to be part of something that's bland and unappetizing. Our speech shouldn't be like that. And now I know that we aren't all consistently going to hit 100% when it comes to this because there's times when we still we get beat down. It happens to me. It happened to Paul. But he was still able to give glory to God while he spoke of his own woes. You can tell that Paul enjoys life in Christ more than a comfortable life without a comfortable destination. We should be able to learn from that and to develop our influence as an advertisement of the satisfying taste of Christ because people around us are looking for something that will last, something that is good in this world of decay. Now that should be part of our prayer, not only just today, but every day. To pray, as, a, as, as my mentor in Coopville prays often, is to let them see Jesus in me. Now let me make one last point as we draw near to the end of our time together this morning. While salt certainly has its usefulness and its versatility, it's a fairly common commodity. You have natural salt uh, that, that's either collected by evaporating seawater or then you got rock salt, which is mined out of the earth. Jesus could have called us the gold of the earth. That would have sounded good. I wouldn't have minded that. But He didn't, even though that we're valuable to Him. Or why not call us the diamonds of the earth? We are in short supply, and we always feel like we're under pressure. But He doesn't even call us the lead of the earth, which could be appropriate for some Christians we've come across. He chose to call us salt. Common, insignificant to us on a daily basis. But could the message be that God often does not choose the rich, the powerful, the noble? 
His normal choice are those who the world would look upon as being insignificant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-29, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Foolish, weak, low, despised. Think back to where you would be without Christ. That was you. That was me. There could be ones hearing this and understanding that for the first time. God in His marvelous grace has reached down to us, the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised, reached down to cover our sins and to sanctify us to bring glory to Himself. And what a testimony. Salvation is not by any merit of our own. It's not by our own power, not by anything that we contribute to it. God does all the saving and we rest securely in His power through anything that comes our way. He's faithful to forgive us. He's faithful to save us and to keep us. Now let us strive to be faithful to His commands to us as we strive to be the pure salt for Him that He designed us to be. Let's bow in prayer. Our mighty Father, You've created us in Your image. You breathed life into dust. And You provided salvation to redeem us from our fallenness and to separate the dirt and the dust from the salt and the light that You've called us to be, to be set apart. Lord, allow the Spirit to work within our hearts this morning to convict us of if there's anything that's separating us from being the pure salt that You would have us to be. Allow us to be more obedient to You and to be the pure salt in this world. And Lord, if the Spirit has convicted one here that they, they don't know You, that they're in darkness and they're separated from You this morning, then give them the grace to respond to You. Now Lord, I thank You for this time and this fellowship of Your church meeting here is Redeeming Grace Church. I ask Your blessing upon them as they go into a Satan-energized world this week. And God, You've won the battle, You've won the victory, but God, we face trials and temptations each and every day. And Lord, help us to put ourselves aside and allow You to take full control over our thoughts, over our actions, and over the opportunities that come our way. And God, let us be active in sharing Your message to a world that needs to hear about You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.